0: Says, Now after two days, he, that's Jesus, departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, Go your way your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to them and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. And he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he'd come out of Judea into Galilee. And Father, we just humbly ask now that you would truly help us in every way that we need your help to continue to worship you now by just giving our attention and our heart and soul and mind to what the truth of your word would say to us. We ask as always, Lord, prepare us, give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church assembled for this hour. And we pray that your Holy Spirit be our teacher and our instructor and the one who would speak directly to our hearts. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, have you ever at some point possibly faced what maybe you might deem as a crisis that took place in your life something like a tragedy maybe even this morning i don't know perhaps you're currently facing a a real major problem in your life it was around the middle of this week around 8:30 or so in the evening that uh, began with a phone call to my wife and i about an hour later around 9:30 we were meeting for a counseling appointment with someone Uh, About an hour or so after that, uh, we then found ourselves taking this young lady to the police station. And then not too long after that, we then found ourselves sitting in an emergency room with her and ultimately pulled back into our driveway at home about 5.30 a.m. the next morning. The reason? As a 19-year-old girl who's a Christian and kept her purity, she was raped 24 hours later, or 24 hours prior that's what i would call crisis that's what i'd call a tragedy and that's what also is a very sobering reminder that though you can serve jesus though you can do what you can to keep yourself out of situations the reality is that sometimes still crises will strike tragedies will happen and none of us quite frankly are immune from them And here's the good news, though those things take place at times and they don't always have answers attached to them, I think we can still be encouraged that we don't ever have to face our crisis alone. And I think this passage is a wonderful reminder of that thing, that Jesus wants to help in crisis situations, and Jesus, in fact, has the power to help. He has the power to assist and the power to heal and the power to intervene at some of the most critical, tragic, hard moments of our life when crises strike. And that's what we see happening in this very story here, where Jesus helps this father with a critically ill son. Look with me in the 43rd verse as we pick up where we began this morning. It says, now after two days, Jesus departed from there and went to Galilee. So at this point, Jesus now departs from his time of ministry there in the area of Samaria, where we've watched him in the first part of chapter four. And he now heads northward up to the area of Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. And verse 44 tells us that as he heads northward, that Jesus himself, John intersects this kind of little comment here, Jesus himself had testified at one point in the past that a prophet has no honor in his own country so at this point we almost get i almost want to call this sort of a parenthetical little statement that john the gospel writer inserts here into the account for some reason john feels led and he recalls to mind how jesus stated this spiritual reality that had taken place at some point prior how a prophet he says has no honor in his own country another translation renders that a prophet is honored everywhere except for in his own country. Now, the account that's being referred to here by John, where Jesus made that statement, a prophet has no honor except in his own country, happens actually in Matthew chapter 13, it's recorded. It's also recorded for us in Mark chapter 6. Let me read to you just the account to remind you of it. It tells us, when Jesus had come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended or stumbled at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, excuse me, except, in his own country, and in his own house, and Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So the idea here, again, is it is often just human nature, the way people are in their humanity, that those who are very familiar with us personally oftentimes tend to have the most difficulty receiving spiritual ministry from us. Just because of that familiarity of personal relationship, a lot of times people who are familiar with us can be prone to kind of mistakenly just dismiss us or to kind of just reject us and not want to hear from us when we want to share spiritual things with them that was the case with jesus we see even in the word of god that in the area where he grew up nazareth and the surrounding area there that the people in that day had trouble believing who he was and again we can kind of just think that through naturally here's jesus he's a carpenter in that area he probably followed the trade of his father as a carpenter and after 30 years of just serving, very quietly and 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 living out his life all of a sudden this public ministry begins where the messiahship of christ comes to the forefront and the people stumbled at that how all of a sudden those who grew up with him and hung out with him and now all of a sudden they're thinking dude you took something. You have a Messiah complex. What is going on? And and you can imagine how it was, it was somewhat difficult for them as now all of a sudden he's revealed as the Messiah and all of these new things are coming out of his life. The problem is, is that unbelief then began to inhibit the ministry that Jesus could have done among them. Now, I just say that for the reminder for us as John inserts it here, Because if that would happen to Jesus, then we really shouldn't be shocked if to some extent the same thing happens in all of our lives, where those who are most familiar with you, those perhaps you're closest to, at times struggle with receiving spiritual ministry from you. And that's really difficult, is it not? Because typically those, these are the people we love the most. And we want to reach the most because we want to share the Lord with them and we have such access to them because they're close to us and we want to minister and share God's truth. And unfortunately, yet they many times tend to be the ones who reject us the most and won't receive from us and can't receive what we say for some reason and they disregard us. And that's not necessarily because there's anything wrong with us. It's just the struggle within them simply with being receptive to us because of that familiarity. Now the question still comes to mind, why is it that John, the writer here, brings up this uh, reminder of how Jesus said that he was not received in his own country? It could be, and I don't think we can be 100% certain, it's somewhat peculiar, it could just simply be that the next ministry area Jesus is going to serve in, as our text shows us, is the area of Cana. And Cana, as we looked at before in chapter 2, is only a few miles from Nazareth. So he's somewhat back into his own country, in his own area again, and it's there in Cana, very close to Nazareth, that Jesus, we see in our text, perceives and encounters unbelief once again. He's going to say, we see it in verse 43, unless you people, collectively in the plural, see signs and wonders you won't believe. So it could be that struggle that John recognized. He kind of connects and therefore inserts this little parenthetical statement in verse 44 look with me in verse 45 our text goes on to say so when jesus came to galilee again that's the region in the north of israel near the sea of galilee the galileans received him having seen all things he did at jerusalem at the feast for they also had gone to the feast so as jesus arrives in the region up north now in that area of galilee We're told here, verse 45, that he's greeted with incredible receptivity. Many of the people from that area had also, the text tells us, gone, look at it, to the same feast. Probably the the feast that had just happened in Jerusalem, the recent Passover feast that chapter 2 recorded that Jesus was there for. And they saw all the things that Jesus had done there in Jerusalem at that same feast that they also were in attendance at. That means they saw, remember chapter 2, they saw Jesus cleanse the temple, remember? Where he overturned the tables of the money changers and he drove out those buying and selling animals and so forth. And no doubt the people were probably looking at this and most people probably liked that. They probably liked to finally see somebody stand up to this corrupt religious system and to not tolerate it. And they probably were very intrigued by the incredible authority that Jesus had as one man and nobody stopped him driving all these unhealthy practices away and how Jesus also referred to the temple as my father's house. They had seen these things about Jesus, not to mention chapter 2 verse 23 also tells us that Jesus did signs and miracles as well while he was in Jerusalem. It tells us this in John chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. So no doubt some of these people from the area of northern Galilee as worshipers and visitors were there in Jerusalem at the same feast Jesus was at, and they were some of the ones who saw these miracles that Jesus was doing during his time in Jerusalem. And upon returning home back to Galilee, they remember Jesus. And they probably remember those pretty incredible things that happened while they were there. And I imagine, like most of us, they probably told stories Of all the people in the Galilee region. Again, in that day, they didn't have internet and television and CNN, so, a good story was something that was entertaining. And you can imagine the area of Galilee, the whole region, by word, you should have seen what this guy did. He just, he cleaned the whole temple out all by himself. And you remember Bubba the guard, he didn't even flinch. He just stood back and, you know, and you can hear him just telling the stories and, and the miracles he did. It was incredible. This guy did signs. And so you can hear them telling the stories of the people in that area. So as Jesus now comes back to the area of Galilee himself, He's somewhat of a little bit of uh, fame, celebrity, if you would. And the people, therefore, it says, welcome him and receive him very enthusiastically. And I am certain, somewhat with a greater level of curiosity, being, I wonder what he'll do this time. I wonder what he's going to do up here in Galilee. I wonder what kind of sign or wonder we're going to see while he's here. If I could, sort of like kind of ambulance chasers. You know, people who see a, a wreck or they see an ambulance going somewhere, and there are some people that their human nature is they, they just love a show. They they, they have this yearning to want to see something, and so oh, there goes an ambulance, there goes a fire truck. And, and people have this yearning to want to see something. And, and again, that same kind of a mentality, that curiosity, that really can happen to people spiritually. I have seen it many a times. I see sometimes whole ministries that seem to be characterized by that it's the signs and wonders show and some people get very caught into they want to see something what's going to be the next sign the next wonder and and this is probably the level of curiosity as Jesus comes into the area of Galilee now and why they welcome him as he comes to the area because they remember who he is and what he had done well verse 46 explains to us what happens when he gets to that region as he goes to a specific town it says he came again verse 46 to Cana of Galilee where, John reminds us, he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea in the south into Galilee in the north, he went to him and he implored him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So as Jesus arrives to Cana, we're told here in our verses that he is approached at some point publicly, it becomes very obvious, by this very wealthy and powerful man who is at this point in a state of total desperation because of a crisis that just happened in his life and he is pleading for help with Jesus. What's the crisis? Well, look at the text that tells us there, and this would be a crisis, it said he has a son that was sick and was at the point of death. That indicates what we would say. He had a son that was critically ill, his own dear son. And no doubt, a child being critically ill for a mother, for a father, that parent would be not only utterly heartbroken, they would be terrified, they would be desperate. And anyone with a child can certainly relate if you just think for a moment what that father was going through. That his child was critically ill, he was at the point of death, Probably, I think, that could perhaps be one of the most difficult, terrifying types of crisis that could happen to anybody. The the things that he must have been experiencing and facing. The bottom line is, here's a man who's forced into facing a crisis. He's forced into a tragedy, and he has no control over it. And more than that, he has no ability to resolve the problem himself. It's completely outside of his control. We're told something about this man, and these things become important. We're told that this man was, it says there, a nobleman, verse 46 tells us. Uh, Your translation may say a royal official. The term there that's used in the Greek literally speaks of being of the king. And what it's trying to tell us is that he has some type of a connection to royalty or government. So I want you to picture in your mind this man who's facing this crisis. He's probably a very wealthy man. He's probably extremely influential. He no doubt holds some type of important, powerful governmental position, which means he probably has a life because of those things of ease. He's wealthy, probably has a very prosperous life because of his uh, position uh, in authority. He's probably able to ask for whatever he wants and to demand whatever he would like to have. And this has been his life experience. He's got a lot of resources at his disposal, yet despite all of that, he's not immune to a crisis. He's not immune to a tragedy. And that still strikes in his life. And when the crisis strikes, his dear son is now critically ill. And like any parent would, I'm certain he did everything imaginable in his power and his ability to try and resolve the situation to get his son help to get his son healed and to save his child's life. I imagine he did everything he could imagine, every resource, every ounce of influence. He probably exhausted all his resources and he still could not resolve the dilemma. He still found himself facing the same problem and he's left powerless to fix the crisis and he's helplessly unable to fix the situation himself. What a terrible place that must have been, but I think you can see a few things from the text here that are important to remember. First of all, that money and power and, and, and position, that does not make anybody immune from a crisis. Listen, I understand people who have money and power and position can sometimes avert certain problems they can use their resources you know they can you know exhibit their position in a way that would influence something to to stop a problem from happening or to clean up a problem a little bit or if they have the ability to demand or command but i'll tell you this when it comes to a crisis when it comes to a tragedy when it comes to getting the cancer or having a child that's critically ill or a horrible auto accident or some crisis that can happen in lives of people some things are completely out of control. It does not matter who you are. And this man finds himself facing this reality that no, all he has, it can't stop a crisis which has now invaded his life. And the second thing I think we see from the text as well is this, is that money and power and position, it doesn't fix everything. It doesn't fix everything. Again, I realize it can fix some things. And I realize some people live in a way where their God is their savings account. And some people, and that's why Jesus said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Listen, we need to realize there's something that is very difficult about having wealth or additional resources because you don't need anybody's help. You can buy what you need, pay off who you want and fix your problems because you can tap into your bank account or whatever it may be. And sometimes that leaves a life of delusion for a while or or again, you can demand what you want or force what you want to take place or manipulate a situation. But the reality is there does come a time and here's a perfect example where money, power and position can't fix and solve every problem. Ultimately, there can come a situation where sometimes those who falsely believe they can fix everything themselves have to come face to face with the sobering reality, I can't fix this one. I can't solve this. This is outside of my control and it doesn't work and all of a sudden, such a person becomes humbly stripped of that false dependency. And all of a sudden, they find themselves less desperate and searching for help like this man. And he has to travel, it says, his son is sick in Capernaum, over to Cana. That's about a 20 to 25 mile journey. And it seems he makes the journey all by himself. Do you want to know why? Because he's so humbly desperate, he don't care about anything else under the sun. He's in a place of utter humility and desperation because his son is critically ill. So this father makes one last effort in his desperation to go seek the Lord for help. Verse 47 says, when he heard that Jesus had come out of the south in Judea and up to Galilee, where he lived in that area, he went to him himself. And it says he implored him to come down to heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. So having heard about Jesus and what had been said about him by others probably, all of a sudden he's got a new level of interest in what maybe Jesus could do. And he hears Jesus is in the area, so he goes to seek the help of Jesus. And the text tells us that he came and he implored Jesus to heal his son. That word implored speaks of begging passionately. It's a word that speaks of pleading and the, the Greek there is in the continual tense. The idea is that he was continuously begging and pleading. And the picture here is complete humility and total desperation. You can envision what this must be like. As he doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. Again, did he fall to his knees? Did he, did he begin to have tears running down his face as he's begging and pleading with Jesus? Please, I can't fix this. I can't resolve it. And though this is probably, no doubt, one of the worst experiences that this man has ever faced, by the same token, the circumstances he's facing are going to result in him seeing the power of God and the reality of God for himself in a way that's undeniable, in a way that the greatest sermon could never convince him. Or the most incredible evangelist or testimony that someone, all of a sudden now this is going to culminate into him seeing God's power and the reality of who Jesus really is for himself in an undeniable way that's going to change his life and nobody could ever take that away from him. And so, out of something very horrible, something very wonderful comes out of it. It ends up him coming to see Jesus for himself, putting his faith in Jesus, the story tells us. And not only that, it says ultimately his whole household ends up coming to faith in Christ as well. And sometimes, let's be honest, here's the application for us. Sometimes it takes a personal life crisis in someone's personal experience to humble them or to awaken them of their need of the Lord. I don't think that's God's preference. I don't think that's God's first design. I don't even personally think in some way that God orchestrates A crisis just to reach someone but the reality is for some people that is what ultimately becomes the catalyst to their heart being softened their eyes being opened and quite honestly perhaps i don't know maybe that was or is some of your experience this morning maybe it was the crisis maybe it was the major problem or the tragedy that took place that was the very thing that was used to make you come to jesus christ And it was that that made you come to the Lord. It was that that made you realize and think about things you never did before. And if that's the case, eternally, it was worth it. Because eternally, when pain and suffering and sorrow and all that is gone and forgotten, there will be something about out of that very bitter thing, something very sweet came because I met Jesus. For some people, perhaps that's the thing that was used to make you come back to the Lord. Maybe you were backsliding or drifting away, and 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 you weren't. And, and it was the difficulty, the calamity, the thing that happened that was the thing that put your feet to the fire, and that was what made you come back to Jesus. And that was the thing for some of us, maybe that was just the thing that made you get very serious about your relationship with Jesus. Sometimes Christians, they yeah, they know the Lord, they know they're going to heaven, but they live a very nominal Christian life. And, and, and so they're, they're content to just sort of, okay, well, I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm just going to live a very casual, nominal Christian life. And then something difficult happens. And when something difficult happens, all of a sudden that becomes a thing where a person goes from being a very nominal, casual Christian to a very passionate, close person with jesus christ because their relationship with jesus here is not going to suffice to get them through what they have to go through so all of a sudden they come to this place of much deeper dependency and perhaps this morning you're even facing a very real difficult situation maybe you're facing a real hardship or a hard time currently can i just encourage you god can use this in your life spiritually in a wonderful way Listen, I, I don't like problems any more than the next person. I always prefer the correspondence course. Please, Lord, you know, I just, can I take that? No, I like the sermon, but I don't want to have to live out the lab work. Teach me a truth, I want to hear it intellectually, but don't ask me to go to the lab afterwards and put it into practice. None of us enjoys difficulty and hardship, but it is not true that those hardships can become the very things that help us many times to grow spiritually and we see the power of God at work. Remember, it was on the, the, the storm at sea as the disciples were there and the wind and the waves were against them and they're straining at the oars that they saw Jesus come walking on the water and where Jesus said, peace be still, and whew, all of a sudden the stormy sea went completely calm. And on more than one occasion it was a storm where Jesus revealed his power and they saw things about Jesus they would never see safe and comfortable sunbathing on the dry shores of Galilee. They wouldn't have seen that. But it was in the storm that they said, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obeys him at a word. And sometimes we see things about Jesus and we learn things about ourselves and about the Lord and how little our faith is and and some of the greatest experiences come out of spiritual things. Again, think of Joseph. He said, you meant this for evil, but God intended it for good. And listen, whether you've made the mistakes and caused your own crisis and tragedy, whether you were just forced into it, whatever it may be, be encouraged because God never allows pain and problems in vain. And he can use it for a good purpose. Take confidence in that, that he truly can work all things for the good according to those who love him and are called according to his uh, good pleasure so this man learned some very incredible things which makes this event not a lost event but something very valuable and fruitful long term so here he is we have him he's pleading with Jesus he's begging for help verse 48 says that he's begging for help that Jesus then responds and this must have been peculiar imagine it says Jesus said unless you people and that is correct because it's a plural word there you it's not just to the man see signs and wonders you will by no means believe so we read that response of Jesus and and all of a sudden we go well that kind of sounds uncaring here's this guy pleading for a critically ill son that almost sounds a little bit uncompassionate to the man's pain or problem we have to remember Jesus was always compassionate to people's pain Jesus was always caring and concerned about people's problems and struggles and suffering which the curse of sin brought upon humanity And that's not what Jesus is doing here. He fully intends, the account shows us, we can read the rest of the story. He fully intends to help this man. He has complete good intention to ultimately answer his prayer request. And whenever Jesus seeks to help us, here's the thing, we have to remember, he wants to help to the fullest extent possible. He wants to help to the fullest extent possible. Which means that sometimes Jesus will address more than just the immediate pressing need sometimes jesus is looking at more than just the temporal situation he also wants to help spiritually and eternally because that's what matters most that's what's most lasting and most critical and if jesus just fixes at times the temporal problem alone and he never reaches the heart of a person in the process it's kind of a lost opportunity Because another problem will just happen. This world's full of sin and the curse and problems. And if he never reaches the heart of a person, and he just fixes the immediate temporal need circumstantially, there's somewhat of a loss there. So as life problems happen here on earth, Jesus seeks to use life problems as doorways into people's lives. Because typically those are the moments when we're the most humble, when we're the most sensitive, when we realize what matters most in life. So Jesus uses life problems as the doorways into our lives. And he also takes into consideration, as we go on, we'll see, the other people that are connected to us as we go through our problems. Because everybody has a sphere of connection, whether it's our family, whether it's our friends. And Jesus' statement here in verse 48 is not just a direct answer to this father in crisis alone. But more, I want you to see, it's an evaluation of the whole crowd of onlookers that are there publicly with Jesus and this man during this tense episode. Here's why. Because no doubt, these people who had saw Jesus do all his miracles in Jerusalem and he had become so popular because of that, these people in this moment, do you want to know what I guarantee you they're doing? They are probably just salivating. I wonder what miracle he's going to do for this one. I wonder what amazing sign or wonder is going to take place next. And Jesus uses this hard occasion as he does all things as an opportunity to help people spiritually to reveal himself. So that's why in verse 48 here, he addresses the unhealthy heart condition of all the onlookers and everyone present and connected to this in this situation. He indicts them by saying, because he knew what their heart was, unless you people see signs and wonders you will by no means believe jesus shows here that the people were searching for a sign they were just searching for a wonder as evidence to believe and jesus shows us in verse 48 here that a faith built only on miraculous signs is a weak faith it's an unhealthy faith It's a faith that has not come to a place of greater maturity. Those who need to see signs and wonders and have experiences in order to believe, prove that they are still weak and incomplete in the faith that God ultimately wants them to have and they're not in a right place spiritually. Jesus testifies those who are saying, unless I see something, I will not believe. Jesus says if that's the case the person is revealing to show that they fail to understand a proper way to relate to God. Which is what? To have the exact opposite attitude, to have an attitude that says, I believe and trust even when I don't see. I'll believe and trust because I choose to believe even when there is no evidence because Jesus is reliable and God is credible so I will take God at his word even when I have no evidence that there's something that's going to take place. Again, Hebrews 11 says that biblical faith, genuine faith, is believing in the evidence of things not seen. It's saying, I believe, even though I don't see any evidence. I believe, even though I can't see it yet, without faith, the Bible also says, therefore, it's impossible to please God. So pleasing God requires exercising faith, walking by faith and not by sight because god's way not man's way god's way is the opposite god's way is once you choose to believe then you will see we say i need to see something then i'll believe and people you know have this little you know arrogant attitude i need if if once god shows me something then i'll believe listen the children of israel saw miracle after miracle after they saw red seas parting and what was their biggest problem unbelief Seeing things, yes, that can have a strengthening effect, but there's no guarantee that seeing miracles and signs and wonders will increase your faith. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That's what builds faith, the Bible says, because it reveals who God is. It reveals his nature to the depth of our souls. So that's why in John 20, Jesus is going to say there, blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed that's a blessed condition when you don't see and yet you still believe because it blesses the heart of god and you will experience the blessing of having given the lord a chance to work by believing and waiting to see what he does well verse 49 says the nobleman hearing this probably like you and i he says sir come down before my child dies exclamation point so he's feeling the pressure here the desperation is mounting inside of him, so he pleads. He almost sounds a bit, not only desperate there, but almost sounds like he's getting a little bit demanding if you kind of get the sense there. At this point, all this nobleman knows of Jesus is he's a powerful worker, a miracle worker from God. He doesn't know fully who Jesus is yet at this point. He desperately needs a miracle and that's his only concern. So you can almost kind of sense his language there. In a sense, Jesus makes the statement in verse 48 and it's almost as if the response of this man in desperation kind of almost demanding says, Sir, can we please set aside the sermon? Come down to my town and heal my son. He's going to die. We can have a sermon later on. Let's go heal my son right now. Please come back with me to Capernaum. I have a son that's critically ill. Now, As you look at this man's statement here, don't overlook what he says in verse 49 there, because I think it reveals kind of the imperfect faith at this point, the current state of weakness in his own faith by just his perspective and his statement. Two things I want to draw to your attention there from his statement. First of all, this man believes that Jesus has to be what? Physically present in order to heal a son. He says to him, come down to my house before my child dies. So his mentality is, Jesus has to be physically present in order for my child to be healed, which means this, he believes that the Lord can work, but only the way he believes that the Lord should work. Which is, you have to be there to say, Shazamazoo 132, heal my son. See, he, in his mind, you have to be there for the miracle. Everybody told me Jesus was there. He healed a a blind man. Jesus was there. He touched some person and they were crippled and they stood up. So in his mind, yes, the Lord can work, but only according to the way and method of how he believes that it's supposed to happen. Does that sound familiar (laughs) to all of our lives? We may believe the Lord can and will work, but we also tend to have an idea or maybe even sometimes a suggestion of the one way that he needs to go about it. Lord, come on, I, I, and I believe you're going to work, and, and I mean, here's option A and B. Can you select one and let's get with it? And, and we have this mindset of this limited view of how the Lord must go about doing and accomplishing what we believe he can do, but we have a limited mindset of how he needs to go about it. And we have to realize that when the Lord works, there is more than one way that he can do it. There is more than one way that he can do it. He is the one who ultimately is going to determine and decide how he works when he does work and accomplish his purposes. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says that God declares, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are high than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts." Hey, this morning, for all of us, let's remember this reality when we're asking and we're expecting the Lord to work. Let's remember the reality that if you don't see your plan unfolding, don't get discouraged and think somehow God ignored you. He lost your file. He, he's he's you know kind of given up. and he's not, Don't think that. Instead, in humility, realize that God has ways to work that we often don't consider. The Lord has ways to accomplish things that aren't even perhaps a thought in our mind, but yet he is not limited and he is always going to work in such a way, I tell you this for sure, he's going to work in such a way where there is no other explanation than he did it to where he gets all the glory and he gets all the honor and he gets the maximum impact out of what he's doing to the greatest spiritual degree. The second thing I want you to notice about the father's statement is this, is the father thought that if his child died, that Jesus could no longer do anything anymore. Because I want you to see what he's saying there. Look at it again. Come down before my child dies. What's that insinuate? Once he dies... It's too late. You have to do it before he dies. What he does not realize is who Jesus is and the power that Jesus has. That even if his child did die, like Lazarus will die in chapter 11 and Jesus shows up three days later, that even if his child did die, there is nothing that limits Jesus. There's nothing that hinders the Lord, not even death itself, the most permanent of things. If Jesus, for his purposes, wants to raise something back to life, he can do it. It tells us in Romans chapter 4, our God gives life to the dead and calls things that don't exist as though they did, which means this, even once something is dead, if Jesus wants to, he can still bring it back to life. In your situation, in your circumstance, if the most permanent uh, of, of... You know, evidence says to you, it is dead. It's dead. If Jesus chooses to for his purpose, no matter what human opportunity is gone, God is not limited and Jesus by his power can still restore. He can bring back to life. He can reopen a door because of who he is. And we need to remember that and not limit him because of our human perspectives. Well, look at verse 50. It goes on. Jesus said to him at this critical moment, go your way, your son lives. He makes this kind of unexpected command and promise, but what's he doing? Assuring that he will work in this situation. He says to this man, go your way. I don't need to come to your house with you. Because the truth of the matter, Jesus says, I've heard your concern. I hear your request. You don't have to strive and stress about this anymore. You can move on now. You can go back to what you were doing. Your son lives. I have healed him and your prayer has been answered. Now, perhaps this morning in your life, there's something going on and you've been really striving over it and you've been stressing over it, maybe rightfully so, and you're striving because of the stress, maybe the word of Jesus today to you is the same encouragement. Maybe Jesus would want to say to you this morning, I've heard your plea. You can move forward now. I've heard your plea, and you don't need to worry about the matter anymore. Because I've worked, and I've already taken care of the matter for you. Go your way and trust me. I've worked, I've taken care. You don't have to strive over this. You don't have to stress over this. Look at this man's demonstration of faith. It turns tables. It says, So the man, verse 50, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. One translation says he took Jesus at his word. And you can tell he did because he proves it by walking in a manner that reveals that he lets the matter go. He stops begging. He stops pleading, he stops striving, and he acts according to his faith. And I'll tell you, that is what the Lord desires for all of us. That we would believe his word to us, take him at his word, and demonstrate that by then acting confidently to reveal that our faith is genuine and we trust him. And that our faith would be demonstrated by that, because a lot of times, and I'll be honest about myself, a lot of times we say we believe what Jesus says to us about something, but we don't act consistently. We say, oh, Lord, I believe your word to me. I believe you're going to provide. I believe you're going to come through. I believe you're going to take care of this. I believe you're going to handle this situation. Lord, I've laid it at the altar. And, and we say, so I believe you spoke to me. You gave me a promise from your word. Right? I heard something, and I, Lord, I believe That you testified to me, you gave me your word on this, I take you at your word, and we say we believe his word, but if we believe his word, we need to stop striving and let him work. Do you understand what I'm saying? If we truly take the Lord at his word, then we need to stop striving over it. We need to stop stressing about it and just rest confidently and let the Lord work and give him room to work. Perhaps you've been disappointed because others have given their word and it hasn't come to pass or it's fell through. Let me just encourage you, don't carry that disappointment over to Jesus. Jesus isn't like people. He's reliable. He's credible. If he gives you his word about something, step out in faith, try him out. Trust him. Give him a chance to show that he will work in your matter, and it really does require by faith to give him a chance to work you'll never see him work if you don't give him a chance to work and say lord i take you at your word i'm going to let you work in this challenge and in this situation well look how the story unfolds verse 51 as he went now and was going back down home his servants met him you can imagine this scene and told him your son lives and then he inquired of them tell me when did he get better and they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour the fever it just left him and the father knew that it was at the same hour in which jesus had said to him your son lives so as the events unfold the power of jesus comes to pass and in this situation the father is so touched he meets people and imagine the emotion of this your son he's alive he hears, and look at it. they even used the same phrase that Jesus did couldn't have planned that your son lives boy that's interesting how did they know what Jesus said back in Cana 25 miles away your son lives you want to talk about confirmation but that's how the Lord works sometimes whoa you just said the same thing that Jesus said to me how did you know 25 miles away and then he's so curious tell me when did he get better how did it happen oh it was like right around the 7th hour the fever it just miraculously departed from him And instantly, this man at that moment, talk about the wow factor, realizes, oh my goodness, that's the same hour that Jesus said that to me. That's why verse 53 says there, he himself believed and his whole household. So at this point, this man is so moved by the powerful work of Jesus in his life, what happens? He becomes personally convinced and he believes in the Lord for himself. And he believes in Jesus himself as Savior and Lord because this work in his life has caused his faith to grow. And that's what the Lord wants. He wants to cause our faith to grow like a muscle to develop it. So he works in this man's life to grow, to bring the unbeliever to salvation, to help the Christian develop a stronger faith. And so persuaded was this guy and so powerful the experience. It says his whole household became believers in Jesus. The whole family comes to the Lord. And that's true of the heart of the Lord because he doesn't want to just save one person. He wants to save whole families. He wants to reach our whole sphere of influence. Probably was not only his household relatives, but even the servants in his house. And sometimes the Lord will work in your life or in the life of a person in such a way because he knows that you will be instrumental in the others that he can reach through you. And so sometimes the Lord may work in that way. I'll tell you this, gentlemen, please hear me. That is why God is after the hearts of men. Because statistically, if you win the heart of a husband or the heart of a father, the percentage of the rest of the family coming to Christ and follow him is huge. It's huge. And the Lord knows the power of influence. And I'll tell you, this morning, perhaps the Lord has worked in your life in such a way and is working by his power, and the reality is, it is so much bigger than you. And you don't even realize it because he knows the sphere of influence that you have contact with and those that you can influence and he sees that ultimately. Well, verse 54 closes, says this is now the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So again, not only is this a second miracle, Jesus has done other miracles, but John says this is the second sign. Specific word. The word sign speaks even naturally of something that points to something that gives revelation or guidance. So what he's trying to say is this miraculous event in Cana, like the first one, it signified something. And what did it signify? That Jesus wants to help in our crises. That he wants to help in our tragedies. And Jesus wants us to believe his word. He wants us to believe his word. And most importantly, it shows this. It shows that Jesus Christ has the power of restoration. Restoration. He has the power of restoration no matter how bad, no matter how impossible something looks like this man with a dying son. No situation, no person is beyond the power of Jesus to rescue, to restore. And that should give us great confidence. Come to Jesus with what you face. Bring it to the Lord. Pray and seek Him. Believe His Word and give Him a chance to work. See what he does. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together.